Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society, the economy, real estate, medicine, technology, and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plout. I am the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 national American charitable organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a model of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission. Join our community of friends. Visit American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online, afrmc.org, via our website and social media outlets, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and on our Facebook page and discussion group. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 30 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. We dedicate today's program to our namesake, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, as we commemorate his legacy 25 years after his assassination. Today's Global Connections topic is America and the Middle East after the election. Looking back, looking forward. Thank you to our very special guest, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times and from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Ambassador Dennis Roth, Senior Fellow Gaith L. Omari. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. Uh, and it's my honor to uh, host another monthly forum for the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. 25 years ago this month, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was slain by an assassin. Not uh, an Arab terrorist, but a Jewish zealot who opposed the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians. The likelihood of a successful, comprehensive peace agreement based on Oslo was looking pretty unlikely even before Rabin's death. After that moment, it appeared still far less likely. In this month's panel on navigating the new abnormal, we check in on the US and the Middle East as a new administration prepares to take office in Washington. Is progress between Israelis and Palestinians a realistic expectation? How sharply will U.S. policy on Iran change? Uh, is the U.S.-Saudi relationship likely to change? We have an excellent panel to address those questions and many others. Now, our first panelist. 
Dennis Ross goes back a long way with U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. In the administration of George H.W. Bush, he was head of policy planning at the State Department, uh, where he worked on the Madrid Conference, where Israelis, Palestinians, and Arab governments sat and spoke together in public uh, for the first time. He was Bill Clinton's special Middle East coordinator and a special advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in the Obama administration. Ambassador Ross uh, may be in private life these days at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, uh, but he is still plugged in both in the region and in U.S. foreign policy circles. Few people have been as involved in the Mideast peace process as Dennis Ross, and we're pleased to have him with us today. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Good to be with you, Robert. Uh, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, the two most recent Democratic presidents, seemed especially determined uh, to reach an agreement, uh, and each concluded his presidency with a, a big last-ditch diplomatic effort, big and unsuccessful. Uh, do you think Joe Biden will attach as much importance to the conflict as, as they did? Uh, I don't think he will, because I think he's going to be faced with very different kinds of priorities. If you think about it, neither Bill Clinton nor Barack Obama uh, necessarily faced what he's facing now. It's true that President Obama was dealing with the effects of the Great Recession, but he also was dealing with what he saw as threats in the Middle East that were generated by uh, terrorism, uh, his concern that the, the Bush administration had declared a war on Islam, not just a war on terror. He felt the need, therefore, to change the imagery, and he saw the Palestinian issue as being something that contributed to the problems that we had in the region. So for him, it was a priority. With Bill Clinton, it was a priority because he had seen a sea change take place in the region. The Gulf War had made the U.S. the uber power. Uh, there was a sense that the Arab states had joined with us in fighting uh, Saddam Hussein, and in doing so, created a new possibility. The Madrid Conference, as you made a reference to, broke the taboo on direct talks between Arabs and Israelis, and Bill Clinton saw the possibility of producing maybe three or four agreements in the region. So they each had reasons to put this as a priority. Joe Biden comes in, and, and not only is he dealing with the pandemic, the economic consequences of the pandemic, the likelihood that the pandemic will be surging, uh, even as he assumes the presidency, but he also knows that there's a stalemate between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There have not been direct political talks between the two for six years. He looks at what is a wide gulf psychologically and substantively, uh, and he and those around him understand you're not gonna produce a breakthrough, so it makes sense to restore diplomacy and take advantage of some new realities in the region, namely Arab state outreach to Israel, mm -hmm. but not to launch a big new initiative between Israelis and Palestinians. He's got other fish to fry that are more important, and he also wants to work on something that has more of a chance of success. There are critics of the Mideast peace process who say that the, uh, the very idea of the two-state solution is a, it's a nice idea, but it's one whose time has still not come and it likely never will, they say. So get real. Uh, the challenge is to assume a single state uh, that includes Israel, West Bank, probably Gaza, and uh, argue that it should be democratic. What's, what, what's wrong with that argument? Well, other than the fact that it doesn't relate to the Middle East, it's just fine. I think the reality is that take a look around the Middle East. Every place where you have more than one national identity, one more than one sectarian or tribal identity, you have a state that either is at war with itself or completely paralyzed. We have between the Israelis and the Palestinians two national movements competing for the same space, two strong national identities. They are not going to coexist in one state as 
Uh, as one of the senior PLO people said to me years ago, look, in one state, either they will dominate us or we will dominate them. Uh, if you want to ensure a perpetual conflict, then you ought to push for one state. If you want to recognize the reality that you have these two national movements, then as difficult as it is, let's figure out how we get from where we are to a two-state outcome. Yeah. You start by ensuring separation between the two. And then over time, you can build this. Ultimately, we've seen examples of Israelis and Palestinians working together. Our challenge is to find the political will among leaders and to create a sense of possibility among publics. Right now, that's completely missing. Disbelief is what characterizes both Israeli and Palestinian attitudes. We have to find a way to restore a sense of possibility. And I believe that exists. I do believe that Arab states that are reaching out to Israel can actually serve as a bridge between Israelis and Palestinians and not a bypass road. Those are developments in the Middle East. Let's look at developments in the United States. Uh, if if uh, this month uh, the American electorate had decided to give Donald Trump a second term uh, rather than, than elect Joe Biden, do you think that would have had uh, much impact upon either politics or diplomacy in the region? Well, it would have had an impact for sure. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Donald Trump obviously by uh, hosting what was a peace agreement between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel, was, was actually presiding over uh, another peace agreement. We hadn't seen one since 1994 between Israel and Jordan. The interesting thing is, would the Palestinians have come back to dealing with the Trump administration if there was a second term? Uh, my guess is they probably would have had to find a way uh, I don't think it would have been easy to produce further progress, mostly because, in a sense, at the same time that the Trump administration was touting this, you also have the president who wants to send a signal that he wants out of the Middle East. Uh, if the U.S. is getting out of the Middle East, you're going to find other Arab states not so keen to go ahead and necessarily normalize with Israel very rapidly. It isn't to say that they won't continue to reach out to Israel because they'll do it for their own reasons. But they won't be doing it because they think they can get something from the United States. Ironically, now, with a president-elect Biden, a country like Saudi Arabia that has to look for ways to improve its image in the United States, and especially with Democrats, one area where they may be able to do that is by doing more on the peace front with Israel. I don't expect them to make one big leap, but then again, the UAE didn't either. They developed a relationship with Israel over the course of more than a decade. So I do think we may see more of a step-by-step -step approach now. The Trump administration basically wanted full normalization or nothing. And you're not going to get full normalization right away. You get step-by-step -step approaches. But you think that the will is there in, in Saudi Arabia these days to move in the direction of normalization with Israel? I think it is, but I don't think it's a top priority for them. I think they have an interest in, uh, in somehow finding ways to repair the relationship with the United States because ultimately they don't trust anybody else to be there in the crunch if they really need help from a security standpoint. So they will look for ways to try to improve the relationship with us. A number of things they'll have to do domestically, like release women prisoners, as one example. Mm -hmm. But if they make, if they launch a big new initiative on Yemen, uh, if they do outreach as it relates to, to Israel, uh, if they make it clear that there's structural changes in the aftermath of the Khashoggi so that this can't happen again, and so the women prisoners also, whatever has been done to them can't happen again, these are all moves I think they could make. And you don't think those moves would make uh, the, the crown prince look look weak before his public if he 
if he exceeded some of these, American some of these moves he may choose to make before the before the transition I mean or during a transition as a way of showing he's doing it on his own uh, my guess is any of these moves are not likely to be made unless there's some understandings with the Biden administration over what they get in return. I mean, one of the fears they have is if they take a series of steps and nothing changes here, then what you raise, I think, would be a concern. Look, you made a move, then in a sense, you humiliated yourself. So my guess is they're probably debating how do they create some kind of package with the United States. That's an issue that I think will probably play out once we see a Biden administration. Uh, Joe Biden supports rejoining the agreement on Iran's nuclear program. Uh, But since the U.S. withdrew from that agreement, Iran also withdrew from it. uh, Is it now possible to uh, reconstruct that agreement or are you back to square one renegotiating a a, a nuclear deal with Iran? Well, I, I think it won't be so simple simply to move back into it. For one thing, it'll take the Iranians at least four to six months to undo what they've done. You know, they have two advanced, two cascades of advanced centrifuges that they have now installed. That's 328 centrifuges. Uh, they have accumulated 12 times the amount of low-enriched uranium that they had at the time that they implemented the agreement. Uh, you have to dilute that or ship it out. Uh, you have to reduce the number of centrifuges that are operating. You have to change what you're doing in Fordo. It's going to take time and expense to do that. And they're already claiming that they are owed compensation. They say the sanctions that the Trump administration imposed cost them $250 billion. So they're starting with the premise, before we do anything, you owe us. Now, that's a prescription for a negotiation, not an automatic reentry into the JCPOA. And, and again, bear in mind that President, Bi- President-elect Biden has said, compliance for compliance, no sanctions relief before they get back into compliance. And after they've done that, then he says he wants to strengthen and lengthen the JCPOA. So I think you're looking at what will be a negotiation, but I think the tone will be different. The readiness to engage in diplomacy, the willingness to align our positions and create a common approach with the British, the French, and the Germans, all that suggests that you'll see a level of diplomacy, but I wouldn't anticipate that you're going to see a very early agreement. Uh, Dennis Ross, I I, uh, have seen in the forthcoming documentary film, The Human Factor, a story about you and the other American Mideast peace uh, negotiators, I, I, I was struck by the moment of Yitzhak Rabin's death and uh, the impact it had on you. Uh, so since this is the, well, the, November is the 25th anniversary of the month of his death, I wonder if, uh, if you might offer a thought in your memories of Yitzhak Rabin. Um, I'm glad you're asking about my memories and not again that day, because that day remains still one that's difficult for me to talk about. Look, he was the most honest leader I ever dealt with and the most intellectually honest leader I ever dealt with. He was the only leader uh, who ever said to me uh, that I was right and he was wrong. He was uh, analytical to a fault. If he thought something through, you couldn't move him. Uh, But if, in fact, the reality proved that he wasn't right, he'd be the first to admit it. He saw the world as it was. He was determined to change it, but he had no illusions about it. Uh, He was someone who felt a responsibility for every single soldier in the IDF. Mm -hmm. Uh, He once said that they were all like his own grandson, who at the time was there. And I think maybe something that impressed me more than anything else about him was the absolute readiness to assume responsibility for every decision he made. There's two I want to just make reference to. 
because they speak volumes about who he was. The first time he was prime minister and you had Entebbe take place, he gave the order, uh, the only way to, to free the hostages, given what might happen in Uganda, uh, was to send commandos there. And you're going a couple thousand kilometers there. So when the commandos were in the air, he wrote two statements. Mm-hmm. One, uh, if, they, if it was successful, and the other, announcing his resignation if it failed. The other thing was, in, in 1994, Colonel Nachum Waxman was, uh, was kidnapped. Uh, and at the time, he thought that Arafat knew where he was and had me go see Arafat. Arafat actually didn't know. Uh, was, and Rabin thought he might have been in Gaza, but he wasn't. He was in Jerusalem. He then authorized what was an operation to rescue him, uh, and Waxman was killed in the operation. Rabin immediately went on TV and said, this was my decision. I bear all the responsibility. And he did that deliberately to deflect from any criticism of the IDF. This is someone who stayed in the IDF, built the IDF, remained loyal to it to uh, an unbelievable degree, but also felt this unique responsibility, not only for the institutions, but every single soldier in it. Uh, Dennis, stick with us because we're going to have a question and answer session uh, shortly. Uh, but Dennis Ross, thank you very much for your uh, for your remarks so far. Uh, our next panelist is a, a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Thomas Friedman uh, was commended uh, first for his reporting uh, in Lebanon, uh, a second time for his reporting in Israel when he was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. His third Pulitzer was for his work as a Times columnist, in particular uh, for illuminating the worldwide threat of terrorism. That alone, uh, that achievement alone, would make Tom one of the foremost journalists of our time, uh, but he's gone much further, writing several books on everything from uh, the Middle East to globalization, infrastructure, uh, and the challenges posed by climate change. Uh, Tom Friedman, we're honored to have you as our guest. Hiya. Good to be with you. I'm actually the father of Natalie Friedman, though, much more important now, <laughs> the producer of All Things Considered, weekend edition on National Public Radio. <laughs> yes, I should say that, uh, you know, people who give to public radio get, uh, you know, they, they get little uh, uh, prizes. Thank you. Right. you know, tokens of our appreciation. For giving a daughter, I think you give a lifetime of tote bags <laughs> and, and mugs that you can count on. Well, the mugs you can drink. In, uh, in, in August, uh, Tom Friedman, uh, after the Israel-UAE uh, normalization was announced, uh, you wrote a column in which you, you agreed with Donald Trump that it was a huge breakthrough. Uh, you called it a geopolitical earthquake. Why was it so important? Uh, and what can a Biden administration uh, actually do in the Middle East, or what can their mediator in the Middle East do, to try to build on that agreement and the normalization agreements that came after it? Yeah, I can now I can now say, Robert, that the president actually called me to thank me um, uh, for my column. Um, uh, so uh, that was interesting. Um, yeah, I think it was huge. Um, I think it was uh, important on many, many different um, levels. Uh, first of all, it created a new axis in the region. When the most successful Arab state gets together with the most successful non-Arab state, that that creates a, a dynamic, a pole. You know, if you're sitting in Beirut today and, you know, under the thumb of Hezbollah and you're bartering eggs for chicken to feed your family at dinner and you see these two successful states getting together, it starts to change the emotional chemistry. You start to say, you know what, I, I'd actually like some of that, you know. And that feeds into a broader change, I think, in the region. It's reflected in what you and Denny were talking about, about MBS in Saudi Arabia, 
um, uh, a, a realization of this generations of Arab leaders that they all have these youth bulges and all these youth bulges um, want to realize their full potential. Uh, they don't, they don't want to fight the next war, the next liberation struggle, the next, um, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, they're really into realizing their full potential. They're living in a world where they can see everybody in other places realizing their potential. And when they don't see themselves living in that kind of context, it really produces a lot of anger. And I think what you're seeing is more leaders responsive to that. And that's also part of the UAE-Israel uh, deal. Uh, that is, I think others will want to emulate it over time. Lastly, I would say it's just the beginning. It's just the sliver. But, you know, relations between Jews and, and Muslims, um, historically, um, uh, you know, they've had all their ups and downs. But if, if all Jews had lived in Arab Muslim lands um, and never moved to Europe, there'd be six million more Jews alive today. Um, uh, and the experience of Jews in Arab Muslim lands, again, had its ups and downs, absolutely. But it, it, it's had a, it also has a very rich and deep history. That history um, uh, took an off-ramp with the onset of Zionism. That, and I'm not blaming Zionism for that, I'm, uh, uh, but I'm just saying that the conflict between Arabs and, and Muslims and Jews you know, really was uh, uh, not a natural thing from a broad historical sweep. And to the extent that we begin to diffuse that conflict by um, these kinds of peace arrangements, these are peace deals of countries that weren't at war with each other, per se, over Israel-Palestine, but were part of a broader breakdown in Muslim-Jewish relations. The fact that the UAE is building a complex with the world's biggest church and synagogue and, and uh, mosque will be, or where the world's biggest will be huge, um, it begins to chip away maybe at that wall. That wall will never come down without some stable resolution, some fair resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think that would be an illusion. Mm -hmm. But but maybe um, this will feed into it as well. So for all those reasons, I would say to one last point, Robert, you know, the more the Middle East starts to look like the European Union and the less it looks like the Syrian civil war, that's actually a good thing. And it's about time. Well, th does the success of the normalization uh, uh, effort, uh, does that mean that, that Jared Kushner had it right, that the kind of outside-in approach, uh, which many criticized for being so far removed from the core issue of Israelis and Palestinians competing for uh, for, for the same land, uh, uh, was not successful. Was Kushner onto something, or did he stumble into something? Well, it, the whole peace plan reminds me a little bit, the whole Kushner initiative. You know, growing up in Minnesota, we used to have a saying that um, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, you know, sometimes... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the way you get big change is when you get the big players to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And um, so here's where I think um, uh, Kushner and Trump uh, played an important role. And here's where accident and Fortuna, you know, played into it. Um, what where accident and Fortuna played into it is that Kushner's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, was very unusual. Uh, he, he comes from an Orthodox background, a very pro-settler. Uh, his team had um, no Arabs or Muslims on it. Um, the Israeli ambassador to Israel was a, a Trump's, uh, the American ambassador to Israel was Trump's bankruptcy lawyer. Um, uh, and a contributor to, to, a, to a West Bank settlement. Yeah, he, he was basically a representative of the settlers more to America than America to, the, to Israel, you know. So they had this radically extreme pro-Israel, not just pro-Israel, pro-settler 
uh, diplomatic team. And what they did, as much by accident as by design, is they actually challenged Bibi Netanyahu. Because Bibi, over the years, and, and Dennis can tell you, he had a favorite thing he'd say to American secretaries of state over and over, test me, test me, test me, test, just test me. You know, if you create the political conditions for me to make peace, you will be surprised. You will be, test me. So as much by accident as by design, um, Kushner, because they're just sort of pro-Israel, pro-Bibi, um, in effect, let Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador to Washington, and Bibi write the plan. It basically, well, what is it you need politically to get a plan through? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what we could really use is to be able to annex 30% of the West Bank, um, including every settlement, hilltops, deep inside Palestinian areas, illegal stuff, everything. We get to keep everything and annex it. Give the Palestinians about 70% for their state. I kind of disconnected, but connected. And give them a little place uh, outside of Jerusalem they can call um, their capital. And that's cool. We'll be fine. And so Kushner took it all down, and he made that his peace plan. Um, uh, and um, and then a funny thing happened on the way to the peace conference. Um, uh, they laid the thing out, and uh, David Friedman, the Israeli ambassador, uh, told Bibi, you know what, because uh, the Palestinians rejected it uh, uh, on its face. But people missed the fact Israel didn't accept it either. And what David Friedman told Bibi was, you just, you can annex your part, you can annex your 30%. And don't worry about that 70%. And here is where Kushner and Trump played a very important role at the behest of the Arab, other Arab countries, our Arab allies. They told Bibi, no. No, if you want the deal, if you want your 30%, You've got to accept in principle that the Palestinians get a state in the West Bank on their 70%. So Bibi then went to his coalition, his base, Mm -hmm. which many of them are settlers, and he discovered what he already knew, what all of us knew, that the settlers were not at 70%. They weren't at 60%. They weren't at 50%. They were at 0%. And because Bibi is facing, is involved in a court case, um, trying to defend himself on charges of corruption, he couldn't afford to lose his base. So a funny thing happened on the way to Kushner's peace plan, Robert. Bibi couldn't accept Bibi's own plan. Bibi writes this plan, and in the yeah. end, he has to tell Kushner, I can't accept my own plan. So now Bibi's way up in a tree. He's up in a tree. He, he, he's told the settlers, you know, I'm going to get you your 30%, but he can't get them their 30%. Um, because they won't accept the 70% for the Palestinians. And along comes Yusuf Alateba, the UA ambassador, kind of whistling down the street, seeing all of this. And he basically tells Kushner, because UAE and Israel had these, you know, secret relations and, and they were they were becoming more and more public. Why don't we formalize this? And he basically said, I'll make you a deal. Um, I will you you um uh, abandon annexation and we will have open formal diplomatic relations. So Bibi was allowed to sell that as a victory. Not that the settlers really found it a victory, but he was allowed to sell that as a victory. He got the ladder from the UAE down from the tree, and suddenly we have UAE, Israeli peace, and Trump could claim he deserved the Nobel Prize. (laughs) You tell me what is accident, what is design. Um, You could have made the whole thing up. But always remember, in the Middle East, you get big change when the big players do the right thing for the wrong reasons. For the wrong. Tom Friedman, uh, stick with us uh, for the question and answer session uh, coming up. And uh, as we turn to our third panelist, uh, joining us now is uh, Raifal Omari, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. That's the think tank that uh, 
on U.S. Mideast policy, where Dennis Ross uh, has been for many years. Arif Al-Amari, who's a lawyer by training, was a member of the Palestinian negotiating team during the 1999-2001 talks. He held several positions with the Palestinian Authority, and he used to be executive director of the American Task Force on Palestine. Arif Al-Amari, it's good to talk with you once again. It's always a pleasure, Robert. And uh, I, I, I want to put uh, to you the same question that I, I started with Dennis Ross on, which is the, uh, the uh, uh, shall we say it's the, the peace process fatigue, uh, which is, come on already, uh, there's a reason we haven't arrived at a two-state solution. It's that it's impossible to achieve common ground between these two parties. Give it up. Uh, count on one state which has both uh, Jewish and uh, Palestinian citizens and, uh, and pressure them to be a democracy, but uh, give up on separation. What do you say? Um, you know, I'll start where, uh, with where Dennis started. I mean, this is a conflict between two national movements, two national movements that want to uh, realize themselves within a nation and a state of their own. The Jewish people obviously want uh, a Jewish state that can reflect Jewish identity, uh, Jewish values, etc. The Palestinians want the same. You know, the Palestinians want a state that uh, that it can be reflective of what Palestinians are. I mean, they've been deprived of a state uh, since uh, the 1940s, and they want to be able to have a state in which Palestinian culture, Palestinian identity uh, exhibits itself. A one-state option simply gives neither of these two people uh, that option. At the end of the day, in a one state, uh, as Dennis said, it will be a fight for domination. I mean, there are some basic questions if you think about one state. You know, they might sound banal, but they're very important. Uh, You know, what language? Is it Hebrew? Is it Arabic? Uh, What flag? Uh, Blue and white, uh, red, uh, black and green. Uh, Is Hatikva the national anthem? Is Fida'i the national anthem? These are all issues that go to the core of identity. And I think it is is ridiculous to think that uh, both nations that have such a strong connection to their identity would at some point uh, give up this identity and decide to, you know, hold hands, sing Kumbaya and forget. Uh, what they're there for. So I I am very skeptical, but the big question that's implied in what you said is, what can we learn from our past failure to move the needle closer to actually getting to a two-state solution? I I was struck by a a panel that the Washington Institute hosted recently online. Uh, There were four very knowledgeable observers uh, from uh, Israel, Egypt, Turkey, and Saudi, I believe. And all of them agreed that Joe Biden has the great advantage of being Uh, the first president to come into office since George H.W. Bush, who actually knows the region, uh, is familiar with the leaders and and the issues. And um, uh, as opposed to newcomers starting from from zero. Uh, I just wonder, though, for somebody who is uh, re-engaging in the region to whatever degree the next American president uh, chooses to, what's different? What has changed about, say, the Arab world? Uh, that might be surprising to someone who was uh, quite active in, uh, uh, in in the region in the 90s. Well, a lot has changed. I mean, it, uh, at uh, the fundamental level, I mean, two major, uh, three maybe major uh, changes I would uh, point to. Um, what is the nature of the threat? Uh, the perception of the threat in the region has changed from uh, a time when, uh, you know, we used to talk about the Arab, you know, the Middle East conflict, we always knew what we we're talking about. We we're talking about uh, Palestinian and Israeli. Today, you talk about the Middle East conflict, you know, where do you start? Yemen, Libya, Syria, etc. And in all of these, there is one, or in most of them at least, there is one common thread, and the thread is Iran. Uh, 
So the idea of what is the threat has really shifted more towards uh, looking at Iran and uh, to some extent for some Arab countries, Turkey as well, uh, uh, seen as part of the threat. Second is the kind of opportunity perception has, always, has also changed. I think what uh, uh, Tom mentioned, the fact that uh, you have a generation that just does not want to continue living in the past. Uh, you have a generation that wants to be part of a bigger global uh, 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 constellation. And this uh, new generation or this new way of thinking is obviously at odds with an old way, way of thinking. But maybe the most fundamental geostrategic change, in my view, is the shift of the center of gravity in the Arab world, from the Levant uh, to the Gulf. Traditionally, if you look at uh, where most of the uh, cultural, political, artistic uh, production was coming from the Arab world, it was coming from uh, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, etc. All of those today are either failed states or at best uh, paralyzed uh, states. Today, the energy is coming from the Gulf. Now, it's an energy that is coming with a lot of growing pains. Uh, Some of these growing pains have very tragic human costs. Look at Yemen, etc. But the fact is that today... The driver in the Arab world is the Gulf. What we saw in the uh, with the Abraham Accords and normalization is a manifestation of this, where uh, the UAE and other Arab countries are saying, look, we're not going to be holden anymore to a conflict that's not our own. We need to look at our own future. So I think if we don't understand these shifts, you don't understand the new sense of both threat and uh, opportunity, I think we might be uh, uh, in for some rude awakenings. I want to ask you about Saudi Arabia, which figures prominently, obviously, in that. Uh, on the second anniversary of the murder, uh, the murder of the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Biden-Harris campaign issued a statement that said this, we will reassess our relationship with the kingdom and U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen and make sure America does not check its values at the door to sell arms or buy oil. Uh, do you think that's just something a campaign puts out and uh, and that actually the relationship will... Uh, continue as it has been, or do you actually expect some serious reassessment of Washington's dealings with Saudi Arabia? First of all, I I think it is right uh, for the U.S. uh, foreign policy to reflect both interest and values. This is what has always made the U.S. great and a force for good. Uh, So, and I think, you know, looking at Biden's own history, uh, I have no doubt that uh, he believes in uh, this approach. So for Saudi Arabia, I think, and rightly so, some of these uh, issues like the murder of Khashoggi in particular and the imprisonment of uh, women activists and things of this sort, we have to call them to account. And frankly, if you look at uh, Congress, there is a lot of uh, uh, appetite for calling them uh, to account. Yet, we also have to keep in mind that uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, today probably the cornerstone of stability in the Middle East. Uh, It is in many ways the leader. Some of the conflicts, look at Yemen. Uh, Certainly the way it was conducted is tragic and beyond tragic. Um, Yet there is a real national security threat that Saudi is facing with the Iranians arming the Houthis who are the Yemeni rebels. All of this to say that uh, for U.S. uh, foreign policy to be effective in the region, we have to also recognize the reality. And at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia is too big of an actor to uh, ignore. And I think, I hope, and I actually believe that a Biden administration will do a bit of both, will maintain our strategic security and other relations with Saudi Arabia without uh, giving up on uh, our values and continuing to push them to uh, do these reforms. One thing that I would say is that, you know, with all of the negativity we're seeing coming from Saudi Arabia, there have been some really 
uh, important positive developments, uh, maybe small, allowing women to drive, uh, some of these domestic changes, but these are significant. And it's important for us, as we call them on uh, their bad behavior, to also reward and encourage the positive behavior if you want to see change to the good. Uh, Raif, I'm going to have to leave it there because we have a doctor appointment that we have to go to right now. That's Raif Alomari of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. In a couple of minutes, uh, we'll uh, put your questions to our three panelists. Uh, but first, as we've done in the past, we're going to check in with the Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Israel uh, with the head of the emergency department there, Dr. Michael Drescher. And uh, M- Mike, it's good to have you on once again. Uh, hi there, Robert. Hi, I'm Michael. Hi, uh, when we last spoke, you were describing the uh, conversion of, a, of an underground parking facility into an extension of the emergency department. Uh, uh, there is, the cases are on the rise in Israel right now. Are you using that? Are you, are, are you're, you're, uh, uh, are you in danger of uh, seeing all of your IC units occupied? How, how bad is it? Well, I'm going to tell you in a second. I first want to thank you. I want to thank you for hosting this august panel, and I want to thank Josh Plout and the American Friends for organizing this, especially on the kind of the anniversary of Rabin's assassination, after whom our medical center is is named. So thank you. Um, as regards the our response to the COVID, yes, we did convert our uh, parking garage, which is right underneath my emergency department, into two units, two uh, medical units that were specifically for the COVID uh, patients, and one of them is still operating. We had a surge back about a month ago or so, and when we had both uh, both uh, departments operating, as of right now, uh, we've been able to uh, to dial back to one. Our emergency department still has um, a uh, operative um, uh, suspected COVID patient uh, area, and uh, as does every other emergency department in the country. Israel has made a deal with Pfizer uh, for uh, for vaccinations or for vaccines. Uh, it would seem that the task of vaccinating Israel has got to be a lot easier than, than uh, vaccinating the United States. Uh, you're a much smaller country. Uh, is there a plan? I mean, has it has it been worked out how actually once the once the vaccine is purchased, how Israelis will be uh, vaccinated and what the preferences will be for who gets it when? Well, a lot of these things are certainly there is a plan, and there are more than one plan. In fact, um, they're not the details of this are not public and probably not even fully decided yet. Uh, we, the Israeli government is not only contracted with Pfizer, but uh, the Moderna. A vaccine, which you probably heard about, came out uh, yesterday with uh, very good results. Um, but we were one of the first countries to contract with them as well. Um, there's going to be, you w- one would assume that the priorities will be healthcare providers, people at high risk, um, and uh, and then on down the list of, of uh, people who need to get the vaccine. Uh, true, we're a small country, but uh, we, as of right now, we don't have our own uh, vaccine. Uh, although there is an Israeli vaccine under development, that also may be may prove to be promising. Uh, have you though been given any sense of time frame when, when once that that uh, contract was announced, how long it might take to uh, to vaccine? Well, we uh, you know we don't we don't know because we don't know first of all how long the the production and the and the transportation is going to take, how how much will arrive at what period. This is also it's still quite a bit. Uh, uh, uncertain as of right now. In, in America, the spikes we're seeing now in cases and hospitalizations, which 
uh, many fear will be a, a, a leading indicator of deaths in, in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, this is uh, getting to be uh, almost as bad as it was at the beginning in March and, and, and April. Israel had a pretty good March and April, as I recall. Uh, is what you're seeing now the worst that it's been since the start of the, of the COVID pandemic? Well, we, the worst of what we've seen was really the, the lockdown. Um, we had a shutdown, which, which worked. They do work in, in, in reducing the number of uh, new cases, uh, but it was very hard on the country and continues, we still continue to have results of, of that. As of right now, uh, the, we, had a, uh, we had a surge back about a month ago where we were not overwhelmed, but we were getting close. And uh, the uh, number of sick people and very sick people was rising, not to the point of what we saw in Europe earlier in the, you know, in the spring, but, uh, but we were getting there. In the, and that was why the Rabin Medical Center opened up new units and uh, brought on uh, extra staff, et cetera, in order to deal with this. Well, Mike Drescher, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us so often. And uh, good luck with everything at the hospital. It's great to talk with you. Uh, now some questions for uh, uh, our panelists, Dennis Ross, Tom Friedman, Ray Thomari, about uh, America and the Middle East. And um, I, I, first of all, I have a question for, um, I just have a question for, for Tom Friedman. Uh, and, and since you've, you've covered a great many countries, a great many leaders, I'm just curious, since we're at a moment when we're talking about the anniversary of the death of, of an Israeli leader and a change of leadership here, uh, how important is national leadership? There are, uh, you know, many historians who would say that uh, material interests and various historic forces to make decisions for us. Uh, how how important is a uh, is a gifted leader? How dangerous is an ungifted leader? Well, you know, um, leadership is always important, Robert. It seems to me. Uh, um, uh, in my career, I've seen about how a a great Principal can turn around a bad school, and a bad principal can ruin a good school. Uh, a great bureau chief can lift a news bureau, and a bad bureau chief can destroy a news bureau. So I'd say in general, I'm a big believer in just the importance of leadership through the, my own experiences in life. But I would say we're at a moment now of, of enormously rapidly accelerating change. We're seeing acceleration on top of acceleration. And in this kind of moment, small errors in navigation by leaders can have huge consequences. It's like the pilot of a 747 who enters his navigation data and just substitutes, transposes two numbers, you know, put the seven where the four is and the four where the seven is, and suddenly you discover you're 5,000 miles off course. Um, uh, and getting back on course can be hugely painful. And let me make a very specific point about that. Think about America over the last 15 years and China over the last 15 years. So China has implemented three successive five-year plans over these 15 years, each one built on the other. America has gone from, in effect, an Obama plan, you know, uh, to a Bush plan, now back to a Biden plan. Each one came in, wiped out a lot of what the other guy did before him, started over. And the net result in a world of rapidly accelerating change is that you, you can start to fall behind. Um, and I'm very worried about precisely that issue right now. Uh, Raif Omari, the Palestinians' leadership, is, uh, is uh, Abu Mazen, is, is, is uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who's, who, who seemed, it seems to be a, 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 a monarchical system. Uh, I mean, he'll, he will serve, I assume, until, un, until his death. 
It's a different model of leadership altogether. And he assumes the same, by the way. Um, uh, and unfortunately, what he has done is to ensure that any potential successor gets undermined. Today, if you look at the uh, map, there are no uh, successors, not because there is no talented people, but because there's a system that does not allow them. And frankly, you know, I'm, I'm less worried. Ultimately, when the time comes, someone will uh, come in. What I'm more worried about is that the legitimacy deficit that this new leader has, the legacy that he will have would be very hard. And we have to start working on this now, working on it both by uh, giving the Palestinians successes through small steps in the peace process, but also uh, working on it by pushing the Palestinians again to work on the reform, institution building, what former Prime Minister Salam Fayyad did. Uh, we need to bring that in. Otherwise, no matter who comes after that, uh, the uh, challenge of the legitimacy deficit would be so high that I worry. And, and uh, Dennis, you, you mentioned the, the character of Yitzhak Rabin and how impressed you were with that. But his character wasn't enough to, uh, to, to, to create a peace agreement. Uh, I mean, there are, uh, there, there's more required than just a strong, good leader, isn't there? Well, you also have to have a partner who's prepared to cross the threshold and make historic decisions at the same time. One of the interesting things about Rabin in February of 1995, I was sitting alone with him, and he said, I'm going to build a, a, a security separation fence. And I said, why? He said, well, partly for security, but because he said, look, I don't know if we're going to be able to reach an agreement on the permanent status with the Palestinians, with Arafat. What I do know is if we don't partition the land, we lose our character, we lose our identity. Mm-hmm. So I will ensure one way or the other that we will partition the land I'll do what is necessary if we can't reach an agreement. So he, again, was adopting a posture that said, I know what my mission is. My mission is to protect Israel, not just from all physical threats, but also from a threat that would change its character and identity. Uh, Here's a question that's been submitted uh, to us, uh, and whoever wants to take it can try. What specifically will it take uh, to convince the average Israeli that making peace with the Palestinians is better than the status quo. Uh, uh, who wants to try that one? Well, why, why don't I start? Dennis? Uh, look, I think the, the key here is uh, understanding that the status quo is something that is sustainable at one level, but not at another. Can you keep what you're doing? Yes, you can keep what you're doing. But sooner or later, you're going to find you will become one state for two people. And when you're one state for two people, you're no longer Israel. So what is required in Israel is sharpening that point. That's when you'll begin to see, I think, an understanding, okay, we have to make certain changes. But I would add one other thing, Robert. Don't underestimate the impact of the UAE deal on Israel. This is the first warm peace that Israel will have. No Israeli would trade what they have. You know, They wouldn't give up the coal peace with Egypt or even the coal peace with Jordan. It's of immense value and they know it. But it's very different when it's a warm peace and suddenly you see yourself as part of the region. You begin to look at the Palestinians through a different lens in that circumstance. So these two things together, sharpening the reality that you're gonna drift into becoming one state for two people and lose your character and identity on the one hand and on the other, suddenly you're seeing that this dynamic that Arabs actually want to live with Israelis, they wanna work with Israelis, they want a warm peace, will change the perception of Israel being in a place where it's still fundamentally rejected. Mm-hmm. 
if I, if I may add, uh, Robert, I mean, uh, uh, look, I'm not surprised that Israelis are, reluct- are uh, skeptical. So are Palestinians. There is a generation that has seen nothing but failure. Uh, since really the Intifada. We have to show successes. We have to, even if there are small successes, and there is a lot of small successes that can be done, small, specific, concrete steps that can show the Palestinians that cooperation with the Israelis work for them and can show the Israelis that they have a partner on the Palestinian side. It's ironic today, if you go to Israel, that the most, you know, forward-leaning, pro-peace, if you wish, uh, constituency is the IDF. Not because they've turned soft overnight, but because they have been working very effectively with their Palestinian counterparts and they have a degree of peer-to-peer respect. Can we replicate these kinds of collaborative uh, dynamics? This will not get us peace tomorrow, but this will start shifting the disbelief that uh, Dennis talked about early on. Well, that that leads me to this question, which I'll put to you, Tom Friedman. Uh, When do you foresee the ascension of a new generation of uh, top Israeli leaders, like a new premier and others, uh, what would be the new geopolitical outlook to, toward their neighbors, if any? And will Naftali Bennett be a future Israeli prime minister? And what, what kind would he be, if so? Oh, a, lot, a lot of questions in there. You know, yes. Um, uh, I, I am a big believer, unfortunately, that um, I'm going to go back to my point that the way you get big change is, you know, when the big players do the right thing for the wrong reason. And if you look backwards at the history, you got big changes after wars, after intifadas, you know, um, uh, that really um, uh, shook up uh, the Israeli status quo. Uh, the Israeli status quo after 67 was that we can keep the territories and everything's going to be fine. And bam, then, you know, Egypt crossed the canal, Syria invaded the Golan. And and uh, suddenly, you know, that was burst and American diplomats came in and had that um, uh Kissinger had that sort of creative clay to work with. Uh, the same, um, you know, was after uh, uh, the uh, the first Intifada, the end of the, the Soviet Union, um, was a was another uh, opportunity that you know people can get very comfortable, Robert, and only when you actually um, force them to confront the pain of uh, of uh, maintaining the status quo um, will they change. If the status quo isn't painful then the the default option is uh, not to do that. And so I'm not here calling for Palestinian intifada. Um, uh, what I'm saying is uh, you've got to find a way to either, either really increase the pleasure um, or really increase the pain um, uh, or some find some combination of both. I always used to say, you know, if Palestinians want to be effective, you know, if you're going to throw a stone at an Israeli, wrap it in a map of a two-state solution. You know, um, but if you just throw a stone... Um, you know, uh, then you're likely to get a stone and a club back. And so it's really finding all of that. I, I would just say that, you know, with all the, the there's something about the current reality um, on the ground there that is the future in this sense. You know, I, I took my daughters and son-in-law to Israel on a trip a couple of years ago, and it was fun for me to go to Israel as a tourist. I hadn't been a tourist in Israel in a long time. And we took a we took one of those really um, kitschy um, uh, you know canoe rides down the Jordan River, and and it was very interesting because we got there and there were six busloads first of all of uh, Arab girls from Nazareth from their school you know going down the river, 
And uh, we got in, there were all these ultra-Orthodox on the river. We ran around one bend and there were four Palestinians, I assume they're Israeli Arabs, and they had lawn chairs just in the shallow part of the river and a ghetto blaster going with Arabic music. You know, Arab girls would get stuck in the weeds and the Orthodox would pull them out. And I just thought, you know, this river actually is the reality of Israel today. The reality of Israel today is that's a one state under Jewish power. That, that's what it is. And how you, you know, level that out, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. But um, uh, there is, you know, I, I was ra- a very senior Israeli official. I won't name his name. I'll just end with this story told me a story that he went to the he went to the hospital to um for for something to get a checkup and the doctor came in and and it was a woman Israeli Arab doctor and because he could just read her name tag you know and he just instinctively said oh where are you from and she looked at him and said where are you from mm-hmm. and so uh, well, you know that's kind of the reality that we've got today and how you sort of disentangle that to give people the dignity and sense of independence that they control their own future and how you get the best of that integration is really what the peace process probably is going to be about. But, but, but let me, let me put to Dennis then the question uh, that the questioner put, which is when do you expect to see a new Israeli leadership uh, uh, coming in? I guess part of the question depends on, on the legal uh, problems of, of Bibi Netanyahu. I, I um, think, it, I think it does. I mean, look, in a lot of ways, Bibi is now the longest serving Israeli prime minister ever. What it reflects is he has been a master politician. Nobody has the ability to maneuver. Nobody has the ability to connect with certainly a key constituency and a key base within Israel the way he does. Nobody frames issues as effectively, even if sometimes it's all in terms of fears and threats and so forth. He's taken up all the political oxygen. You, you cite as an example Naftali Bennett, mm-hmm. who challenges Bibi actually from the right. I mean, it isn't necessarily the case while the country has moved somewhat to the right, the country is still basically, I think, a center-right country. Bibi has been prime minister so, for so long that one of the things you always hear when you're there is, well, you know, I think he's served too long, but who else can be prime minister? It's almost as if he's created the image that he's been around so long that nobody could possibly measure up to him. And the truth is, we won't know that reality until we actually see it. At some point, he won't be prime minister any longer. We have a country that is a cutting edge country in every field. It's inconceivable they can't produce a high quality leadership as well. Here's a question. Uh, uh, Is uh, is it... um is a piecemeal process between the PA and Israel sustainable if it excludes Hamas? Uh, Is it viable that Israel could be at peace with West Bank Palestinians and at war with Gaza Palestinians? Uh, Reitho Mari, first, you can can try that one. Sure. I mean, look, it has to exclude Hamas because Hamas, at the end of the day, very clearly uh, advocates for destroying Israel and it's still not only calling for terrorism, it's engaged in terrorism. So it's not clear to me how it can include Hamas in any ways. Now, it doesn't mean that you forget Gaza. You have to find a way to stabilize Gaza, to create a humanitarianly acceptable situation in Gaza. And by the way, you know, whether it's the Israelis, the Egyptians, the UN, others are doing it. But at the end of the day, the Palestinians are facing two narratives, two directions. Hamas is calling for a direction that's about violence, that's about uh, lack of coexistence with Israel, about destroying Israel. 
The other uh, direction is one that is calling for a two-state solution to be reached through uh, engagement and cooperation. And unless one of these two is validated, um, you know, you can't have them together. So uh, what we need is to succeed in the kind of collaborative, peaceful approach. And that will put pressure on Hamas then uh, to uh, change and to engage. Engage Hamas today, they will feel validated and will they have no reason whatsoever to change who they are. And what they are today is actually very abhorrent. And we have time for one more uh, question, and it is about how you appraise the threat to Israel from Hezbollah uh, and the impact of instability coming from Lebanon and Syria. Dennis, you want to take that one? I'll just say, look, there is an interesting irony right now. Neither Hezbollah, Iran, or Israel want a war with each other because they all realize it's a really terrible war. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of mutual deterrence that exists. Now, there is one scenario that worries me a lot, and that is that if things get so bad in Lebanon and Hezbollah feels that this is a moment where they have little to lose and they need, therefore, to divert attention away, they could trigger something. It will it'll be a war that you know how it begins, you don't know how it ends. Israel will not be hit with 3,000 rockets a day uh, from Hezbollah and allow Iran to sit untouched in Iran. Uh, you'll see a war that escalates not only vertically, but, but horizontally as well. It is a reminder that there's a lot of reasons to create for the Iranians an incentive to look for ways to stabilize the region, which is not what their posture has been. Well, Dennis Ross and Tom Friedman, Raithal Omari, thank you all uh, for taking part in this, in this panel. And thanks as well to Dr. Michael Drescher of uh, Israel's Rabin Medical Center. Uh, also, thanks to today's program sponsor, uh, Fried Frank. And uh, many thanks to Joshua Plout, Nate Banzani, and Ronnie Gibigliano of the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center and our video and Zoom director, uh, Bobby Grandone. Uh, we also want to acknowledge our program sponsor, the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which is a 501c3 national charitable organization uh, representing in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the hospital's website, by the way, is www.afrmc.org. Join us next month, uh, Thursday, December 10th at four o'clock, when we'll be talking about Washington, the presidency, Congress, and the Supreme Court uh, in the coming year, as we see a new Congress sworn in and a new president inaugurated in the following month. Uh, among our panelists will be uh, my former colleague and good friend, NPR legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections Navigating the New Abnormal. See you next month. Uh, stay healthy and stay safe.